All right, we're live. Hi, this is William Ramsey. Welcome to William Ramsey Investigates. On tonight's show, I have a very special guest. Her name is Marnie Rich Keenan, and she published an excellent book, which I read in its entirety. The title of the book, a true crime book, is The Snow Killings, Inside the Oakland County Child Killer Investigation. It was published in June 2020, and uh, it's really one of the best true crime books I've read about. And I, I vaguely had remembered the whole story of the Oakland County Child Killer and how it was a terrible crime that took place bet or crimes in a 13 month span between 1976 and 1977. So it's an older case, but still is reverberating up to the present day. And uh, mm-hmm. Marnie can talk about that in greater detail. So Marnie, are you there? I am. Awesome. Well, thanks for agreeing to the interview. So for people who don't know your name or aren't familiar with this work, can you talk a little bit about your background and how you got involved with the Oakland County child killer investigation? Sure. Um, I'm a journalist, and uh, I've worked for newspapers and magazines for, um, dare I say, for 40 years. The last 26 years, I was a reporter and a columnist for the Detroit News. And I grew up here in Oakland County, Michigan, so I knew the crimes well. Um, And I knew that the entire metro Detroit area and really anyone who lived here during that time was deeply affected by it and had never forgotten it. Um, and can you talk, I mean, so you were kind of right there in that area. Can you describe that environment back in 19, sure. 1976? And for people who don't know this series of murders, can you describe them in detail? Sure. First of all, Oakland County is um, uh, a county that's just about northwest of, of the city of Detroit, um, at the time, it had about a million residents, and for for decades, it has been ranked um, one of the top five or ten affluent counties in the nation. So when these crimes occurred, it was, you know, for something like this to happen, it was almost inconceivable. Um, you know, we all enjoyed nice neighborhoods and nationally ranked schools and... Um, I, you know, in hindsight, I, I think many of us will agree we were both naive and in denial. But um, beginning in February 1976 and lasting for the next 13 months, four children ranged in age from 10 to 12 years old were really uh, plucked into thin air um, in broad daylight while walking on sidewalks or or riding a bike, and they simply vanished. They were held alive, um, captive, we don't know where, from four to 19 days, and their bodies were then dumped by public roadsides in snowbanks. They had been killed within hours of being dumped. Um, Three of the children had been smothered. One was shot in the face. And um, the search for these killers back then was massive. It was well-funded. I think the state legislature asked for a million dollars from the federal government. And uh, at its peak, there were over 300 detectives um, working the case. So it was then uh, the largest manhunt in the country's history at the time. And... To this day, as you said, 45 years later, 
Uh, the case has not been solved. No one's ever been charged with the crimes. And I maintain in my book that um, the reason it has not been solved, and I, I think my reporting bears this out, is because in 1978, this is a year after the killing stopped, um, law enforcement, along with the family of a pedophile who was likely involved, engaged in a cover-up. And because of that cover-up, all the physical evidence that, that could have been used to solve the case was destroyed. Right. And that was, and there was something about the murders too, that the children were cleaned as well. Like I think yeah. you described them as clinically clean, the fingernails and toenail scrapes. So somebody was very careful yes. in covering up evidence. Here. Yes. Um, but, go ahead. but there was also, you wrote in your book at that time in 77 and 78, there were other, child abductions and killing. So it was an environment that was, um, you know, very unsafe. I think John Wayne Gacy was what, two states over. Yes, that was a, yeah. People don't, people, well, maybe, maybe it's just me, but we tend to forget what a violent, scary era, you know, that was right after the recession. Um, and in fact, these weren't the only uh, four kids who had disappeared in Oakland County. There were three other girls who who disappeared and wound up dead in the same time frame. Um, it was later, not too long after our our victims wound up dead, that it was just it ruled that the three girls who were teenagers and who were older um, were not part of um, the the mo of the Oakland County child killer, but still, and 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 in fact, their killings had been solved in short order. But still, seven kids, you know, going right. missing and ending up dead. And um, what, what? How did the police determine that these four children were all connected? Um, they all, uh, they all were, um, as I say you know, abducted without any notice, without, without any screams, anybody noticing an abduction. Um, they were all held captive for a period of days. And, and when their, and their bodies were on sort of, they were found in public places, as I said, almost as if it was a taunt. Um, it was almost as if the killer wanted the bodies discovered readily without, you know, trying to hide anything. Um, as you said, um, the the kids were all dressed in the same clothes that they had on um, when they disappeared. Some of the clothes had been washed. Um, there, <clears throat> there was signs of of sexual molestation, but no no semen. Um, and and uh, their bodies were very clean. Um, so it was after the, the first, the first, um, child to go missing was, was Mark Stebbins. And that was in February 15th, 1976. Um, he was, he was at the American Legion Hall and, uh, with his mother and his older brother, and he wanted to go home and watch a movie. And this is at 1 p.m. on a Sunday, and he never arrived home. 
His body was found four days later, lying against a partition wall in a neighborhood shopping plaza. Um, and then three days before Christmas, Jill Robinson, who was 12 years old, um, uh, left her mom's house in, in Royal Oak. Her parents were divorced. She'd gotten in a bit of an argument with her mom. And she jumped on her bike, presumably to ride to her father's house in nearby Birmingham, and she too disappeared. Um, she was missing for four days, and the day after Christmas, her body was spotted by a passing motorist along I-75, right in the pull-off lane. Um, she had been shot in the face, but um, investigators later theorized that perhaps she too had been suffocated. Um, and uh, the reason they thought this is, is uh, well, this was their theory, was that she had been laid down on the, um, on the asphalt and she was still wearing her backpack. And when she laid down, with her backpack on her, she might have expressed um, some air from her lungs and the killer might have thought that she was still alive. And so he grabbed a gun. Um, and the third victim was Christine Mihalik. Um, it was only a week after Jill that she went up to um, in the afternoon to a 7-Eleven to buy a teen magazine and, um, the clerk remembered selling her a magazine. Christine was seen walking home along 12 Mile Road, but then she vanished. Uh, she was gone 19 days. Um, just an interminable long yeah. of time. They were being fed, the children while they yeah. were. Yeah, yeah. So something was happening. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, her body was discovered by a mailman at. Um, delivering mail in a nice residential area in Franklin. And it was after Christine that law enforcement knew, you know, that they had a serial child killer on their hands. So they, um, the, the Michigan State Police got involved very quickly. Um, Robert Robertson, who was the commander of the, of the Southeast Criminal Investigation Division of the Michigan State Police, found, you know, several police chiefs of jurisdictions from either, you know, where the kids were snatched or where their bodies had been dropped and formed, you know, the first ever um, uh, meeting of the Oakland County Child Killing Task Force. And a couple of months passed. And then on March 16th, Timmy King um, uh, walks up. To he borrows thirty cents from his from his older sister and walks up to buy a candy bar with his skateboard um, to the drugstore. And um, Timmy, <laughs> I shop right where Timmy disappeared. Um, um, it it was a Wednesday night. His parents had gone out to dinner at a nearby restaurant that it turns out to be actually Kitty Corner from where Tim would be abducted. Barry King was a well-respected attorney and he would become very active in the case later on. Um, uh, his oldest sister 
was getting ready to go see a, um, a comedian, Jerry Lewis, doing a stand-up routine. His brother, who was Chris, who was 16, was um, babysitting, and his other brother, Mark, had gone to middle school for a play rehearsal. So he left, Tim left at about 7.45. And um, Barry and Marion arrived home at 9, shortly followed by Mark and Chris, and Tim was nowhere to be found. Um, you know, they called friends and neighbors. Chris King, King describes getting in the car with his mom, you know, to drive by friends' homes and just to look at the backyards. And Tim said, you know, or Chris said to me, you know, one house, house was, was dark. It was completely, you know, pitch black. Nonetheless, Chris says, you know, I'll, I'll go up to the door, Mom. And she said, you know, no, it's no use. He's not there. And Chris said it was just, it was horrible because from that moment on, you knew the clock was ticking, you know. Right. right. And, I mean, it's pretty remarkable. So they had this, the most massive murder investigation in U.S. history. And that happened after Timothy King was found. How, how many days was he missing for? Six days. Six days. Yes. And uh, it, I mean, it wound down in 1978. So it lasted for what, a year and a half. And they, yes, it's kind of an odd thing because it seems like what was in your book is that there's not a lot of evidence came out from that huge task force to the public. Exactly. Yeah. So, I mean, there's um, in hindsight, of course, there's a, a lot of criticism to be found, but um, uh, they were dealing with, first of all, eight jurisdictions for starters, you know, since the kids were picked up in, in different places and dropped off in different places. So you had a lot of competing law enforcement, local law enforcement agencies involved. Um, many of them, you know, so eager to solve this that they would focus on one tip hoping to find the smoking gun while overlooking others. And um, when it was all said and done, there were something like 18,000 tips that had been phoned in. Um, so surely uh, it would be no surprise um, to have someone say that the right hand didn't know what the left hand was doing. Right. Um, and, you know, they, they, they failed to look at um, at the you know at at the fact that that child pornography and child prostitution was alive and well and it was right underneath our noses. And it was, I mean, you would, I mean, I think from your book there was a lead. It seemed like an elite. You mentioned the name Sandusky Hastert. Yeah. But it seemed like there was an elite group at that time in Detroit and in the Midwest. Can you talk a little bit about the environment? that these murders took place in? Um, well, we don't, I mean, I, I don't know that um, we don't know for sure that, I mean, that's the likely explanation is that they were part of, um, they were used as subjects in a child pornography ring. Um, and, and we think that because um, there were two very, um, active rings at the time. Um, one was um, operating in a 
10 inner city block area of Detroit known as the, the Cass Corridor. Um, this is a, it was, it was uh, once densely populated with immigrant families who had moved north to work in the auto factories. And then once the recession hit, um, it hit the Cass area very hard and the area became a haven for the drug trades and sex workers. And since, you know, uh, fathers had moved out because of the auto recession. Kids ran wild, and it really became a, a predator's mecca. Um, and um, the other child prostitution ring that was really active was uh, active on a on a private island called North Fox Island. Um, and a man by the name of Francis Sheldon, who was a very wealthy real estate developer from Gross Point, financed both of these operations. Um, and North Fox Island is it's kind of almost at the very top of the state of Michigan. I think it's what, Lake Superior, is that right? No, it's in Lake Michigan. Michigan, yeah, sorry. So, yeah, but it's, That's it's, right, south of Charlevoix, yeah. yeah. And he right, had to right. kind of, you had to fly all the way up. It had its own landing. Yeah, he built uh, his own landing strip. And Le- Sheldon was kind of from an elite family. Would you agree with yes, that? Yes, you know, very much so. He came from one of the country's most prestigious families. His, his, um, his great-grandfather was a former governor, um, and a U.S. senator, and um, had served, I think, as the Secretary of War under the McKinley administration. Then his grandfather was one of the founders of the Packard Motor Company, and his father um, was a big land developer here. He was he built um, two of Detroit's most prestigious subdivisions. And Francis went to the best schools. He got an art degree from Yale and a master's degree from Wayne State University here. He was immensely wealthy in 1976. He was worth several million dollars, but he led a double life. And what led it? Somebody else was arrested, Gerald Richards, right? Yeah, Gerald Richards was his underling. Um, He had hired Gerald Richards to be his... Um, photographer, and uh, and he was also the director of the operation that he ran on the private island. Um, that operation was called Brother Paul's Children's Mission, and it was billed to be a, a nature camp. Um, <laughs> and so he enlisted kids with their parents' permission to come to this nature camp. He had had it incorporated. It was funded, you know, by our tax dollars. Um, But kids on the island and at, um, and, you know, at at orgies, I guess I'd call it, in the cast corridor were filmed and with home movie cameras. Uh, then it was shipped to Amsterdam where it was developed and mass produced and then sent through the mails. And as you mentioned, I'm sorry, um, Gerald Richards was um, Francis Sheldon's underling, and he was also a, um, a physical education teacher at a Catholic school in Port Huron. And he was a, he was arrested for 
molesting one of his students. And once he was arrested, he, um, he tipped out Francis Sheldon and, um, and police uncovered uh, scores of, of film in Gerald Richards' office that really was the string um, that pulled the thread on, on child pornography and prostitution operations throughout the country because, um, you know, Gerald Richards had film showing uh, kids that were involved in Tennessee and in Chicago and, and all over the country. So it was really uh, quite providential, I guess. Um, the only problem was um, as soon as Gerald Richards tipped out Francis Sheldon, Francis Sheldon just by chance had called Gerald Richards' wife and she said, no, he's not here. He's been arrested. And as soon as Francis Sheldon heard that, he bailed. You know, he uh, mm-hmm. fled the country and uh, he was never extradited, sadly. Right. He was married. So he cleverly married some French citizen. You know, oh, my you know, gosh. Right? The stories, you know. Yeah, so, And like all of his child porn collection or whatever his collection was disappeared from his house. Yeah. He ends up in exactly. Amsterdam. So. Yes, exactly. Yeah. But yeah, you said, I think you wrote in your book about the cast quarter, it said kids disappeared here all the time back then, but nobody cared until those Oakland County kids went missing. So yeah. it's, uh, it's, I mean, that environment was, uh, look, it, it was, was. Kind of like, yeah, yeah. it was, I mean, they made snuff films there. We, you know, and I just, I don't, it was all going on, you know, while I was here, well, we all were here and you, you, you brought up, I think Jerry Sandusky and, um, Aster, yeah, yeah, Aster. yeah, and I, you know, you think um, it was it was just too abhorrent to even think that something like that could be going on, and yet, you know, we have the Catholic Church, and right, and we have Jeffrey Epstein, who's right, Good point. he has Epstein. his own island, right? <laughs> so you have North Fox Island might have been the first kind of uh, exactly. Little St. James, right? Yeah, so they're bringing right. in kids and people, right? And I think you talked about. I mean, we can get further on, but I mean, one of the case kind of after the task force went down, like stopped in 1980. Yes. There was, can you talk about Corey Williams and and his investigation? Sure. Um, uh, Corey was, um, it's interesting because there's, there's so many threads to this story, but um, Corey's father was um, also a police officer. He was, Corey grew up in Berkeley, which is where Christine Mihalik um, uh, disappeared from. And um, the night of her disappearance, it just so happened that Corey's father was good friends with Christine's grandfather who called in a panic and Corey remembers that night, which is interesting. And he remembers lying in bed at night, um, you know, talking with his brothers about what they would do if if they were, um, you know, being pursued by the Oakland County child killer. So anyways, Corey grows up and uh, becomes a Livonia clap. And he is, uh, I think, in... I uh, have to forget, I forget the year. I think it was 2005, 2006. He was in 
investigating a cold case homicide of a, the owner of a cab company um, here in Detroit who um, who had been killed in his driveway in 1985. And Corey's looking up the records and reading about a suspect whose name was Richard Lawson, who had been picked up. He was on the run and he had been picked up in Pennsylvania um, for, I think it was um, armed robbery. And Richard Lawson says to these Pennsylvania detectives, well, I can give you some information on the snow killings. And well, these Pennsylvania detectives had no idea what he was talking about, but to Corey, the words just jumped off the page. He knew that the Yoton County child killings had often been called the Michigan snow killings because the kids were, were taken and, and often their bodies deposited when it snowed. So now he's he's pursuing Richard Lawson not only for the homicide of a of a, the cab company owner, but also he's pursuing Lawson to find out what Lawson knows about the snow killings. And indeed, Lawson Lawson knows an awful lot because Lawson was a a, a really um, <laughs> serious pedophile, right? Yes, like he was exactly. he was always a pedophile. I think Corey Williams, you wrote in your book. He had an uncanny knowledge of the underworld of pedophiles. Yeah. None of us, he had knowledge none of us could get because it's like a secret society, unquote. Right. And he said, to, he told Williams that, that he, along with others, were prostituting children to, quote unquote, rich auto executives in the suburbs. So Corey spends about three years unraveling the, the horribleness of child prostitution and pornography. Um, and he was able to identify several hundred men, you know, belonging to a structured organization broken up into hidden cells. And um, the leaders of, of these cells had organized seconds and lieutenants and sergeants. And he identified local politicians and auto executives and even a U.S. senator that was involved. Um, but he was able to put away for life uh, Richard Lawson for the murder of Xavier Giller and another pedophile whose name was Ted Lamborghini. Um, he put him away uh, for life. And as he's um, uh, prosecuting these two, he gets a call from... Uh, Tim King's sister and Tim King's sister, whose name is Kathy Broad, had been watching um, Corey Williams and his work in the cast corridor. And and she didn't want to. She said, I've got an amazing lead. And um, she the only person she could think of that she could trust was Corey Williams. They were, the family was very mistrustful of the Michigan state police. And this is sort of what I consider to be the second providential thing that happened in the case. And and that is the story of the conversation between two polygraph examiners in Las Vegas. Okay. Can you talk about that? (laughs) Um, So Patrick Coffey was um, 
uh, a childhood friend of Timmy King. He grew up uh, right across the street. And um, he was so affected by the murder of his childhood friend that he grew up to um, become a, a polygraph examiner. And in 2006, he um, is giving a presentation at this convention in Las Vegas. And sitting in the audience is um, a man named Larry Wasser, who who was from Detroit. And at the time, he was president of the Michigan Polygraphers Association. And he was so impressed with with Pat's presentation that he walked up after it and introduced himself and said, you know, maybe you can come to Detroit to give the same presentation. And he said, um, Pat said, well, of course, yeah, I'd love to. I grew up there. And in fact, um, the reason I became a polygraph examiner was because of the tragic loss of my of my childhood friend. It was a pretty famous case. Perhaps you've heard of it. It was the Oakland County child killings. And, um, you know, Patrick told me his Larry Wasser's mouth just dropped. And he said, well, of course I've heard of the case. And uh, for whatever reason, Larry Wasser said, um, I guess I can tell you this now because the suspect is dead and so is his attorney, but I tested the suspect who confessed to killing your neighbor boy. And in doing so, um, Larry Wasser had, um, I, lawyers call it an excited utterance. You would know that. Evidentiary. Yeah, yeah, right. Exception to the uh, evidence rules, yes. Right. Excited utterance. And they tend to be more true than. (laughs) Right. Well, that's why they're exceptions. That's why they're in that list. Right, right, right. So, um, but in doing so, he violated. polygrapher client privilege. And from there on in, he retreated and and denied to me that the conversation had ever even happened. So yeah, he denied it to everybody, right? And Coffee yeah. was trying oh, to play yeah. it cool. Like he didn't, oh, yeah. Because this, this was how opening up a, a whole new direction yes. in the investigation. 30 yeah. years later, it's incredible. Yeah. So Kathy calls Corey Williams and says, tells him this story. And um, Corey Williams gets an investigative subpoena. And after a lengthy legal fight, um, Larry Wasser negotiates a deal whereby he will give hints to what the name is um, in exchange for not having to be under oath. And uh, so he gives Corey Williams hints and, and, um, after not too long of a time, the the name that is revealed is Christopher Brian Bush. Right. And who is Christopher Brian Bush? <laughs> Christopher Bush is a four-time uh, convicted pedophile. He's 24, 25 years old. He was the son of a prominent uh, GM executive whose name was H. Lee Bush. And H. Lee Bush was the chief financial officer for General Motors. They lived in a big, gorgeous, sprawling five-bedroom home um, in within a five-mile radius 
of all ki- where the kids lived. Um, I said he was he was convicted four times of rape with a minor, but he never spent a day behind bars. And that's because his father hired a very good defense attorney um, and flew her around Michigan in the family jet to get his son off of all these charges. Yeah, and those were charges that took place January 1976 to July 1976. So it's right within the time frame. Exactly. Exactly. And her name was Jane Burgess, right? So, uh-huh. Yeah, uh-huh. And so that was never made public. All of those uh-huh. stories of him, but uh, yeah, yeah. All of a sudden, he gets his name, and he goes back to the to the Oakland County Child Killing Task Force files, and he pulls the name, and it's like there's this avalanche of evidence on this kid that nobody ever knew about. Right, it was never public, and he kind of had a sidekick, right? Yes, yes, yes. Um, His name was Gregory Green, and um, uh, the two of them were notorious pedophiles, and they were both arrested at the same time um, for molesting the same kid in Flint, and this is in January of 77, so it's at the height of the Oakland County child killings, and... Once interrogated, Gregory Green says that Christopher Bush killed Mark Stebbins, the first victim of the Oak County Child Killings, and um, they're they're both given polygraphs. It turns out they they pass the polygraphs. Um, uh, of course, Gregory Green was not of the same financial means as Christopher Bush. And Gregory Green, for that same charge, um, is sentenced to life in prison. And Christopher Bush's um, bond, they both shared the same bond, which I think was $75,000. Christopher Bush's was reduced to 1000 And he walked and eventually got a plea deal on the same charge for which uh, Green was convicted was to life yeah. sentence, so there was right. two bifurcation in <laughs> the unproportional yeah. sentencing between them both. Yeah, and Greg Green was like, uh, yeah, and I mean, it's pretty in- incredible to think that he that Bush got out of four different charges. It was four different offense, four offenses in different jurisdictions, right? Exactly. Yeah. Right. So yeah. he was very. It means he was active in multiple jurisdictions. Yep. And um, it's, I mean, he, he, I think it was during the interrogation you wrote that he had talked about with Green about abducting. Yes, boys, right now. yes, yes. And so, and when um, he was interrogated, he was asked by the police, where would you, where would you look for your, for your, you know, for your boys, for your victims? And he cited in chronological order, the three sites of the first three victims' abductions, which was just bizarre. I mean, for Coy to be reading this, and, and um, it, of course, at this time, Timothy King hadn't gone missing yet. Um, so Christopher Bush walks, and three weeks later, uh, Tim King goes up to buy a candy bar and never comes home. So... 
Um, so there's a lot of suspicious things about Bush, but even more that they passed a polygraph back at around the time of the murder. Yes. That, yes. The second, yeah. Can you talk a little bit about that? Sure. So um, Ralph Cabot was the, um, he was not the, the Michigan State Police um, examiner that would have normally done um, polygraphs based on suspects of the Oakland County child killings. He was um, assigned to the Flint Police Department. And um, later, Corey had three independent polygraph examiners view the results of Chris Bush's uh, polygraph. And, and all three of them concurred separately without even knowing it, that, that he, he failed. Um, he, he bombed. <laughs> right. He bombed. <laughs> yes. it, right. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, so then the, the plot even gets thickens mm-hmm. even more because Bush supposedly committed suicide in November 20th, 1978. Exactly. And I mean, there are pictures of that crime scene and that does not, something really suspicious about that as well. Yes. Um, He was found dead in his, in the bedroom of his parents' home in, as you say, November, 1978 um, uh, with a hunting rifle wound right between his eyes Um. Uh, he had a blood alcohol level of 0.41, which is which is pretty near lethal, I think. Yeah, very close. Uh, there was no blood spatter on the walls. Um, on on one of the walls was the drawing of a young boy, and the young boy is screaming in anguish. And in in the book, I have the two photos. Um, this boy looks exactly like Mark Stebbins. And in fact, they're both they're wearing the same coat that Mark Stebbins was wearing when his body was found. Um, it's got taped to the wall in the in his closet. There are ropes just right there in the middle of the closet floor. Um, when the ropes were magnified, they were said to have had um, blood on them. Um, there was a 12-gauge shotgun shell left very conspicuously on the dresser, which is the same um, firearm that was used to shoot Joe Robinson. Of course, you know, everybody, Williams wondered where, if the ropes could have been used to, to bind um, Mark and Tim's wrists, both of whom had marks on their wrists. Um, uh, the, there was virtually n- no autopsy. I mean, there was one page of it. And um, his, his body was cremated two days later. And the family sold the house six months later. Um, And it it was obvious, even to the officers at the scene, that this this was most likely not a suicide, that it was very staged. But... um, (laughs) It was much easier just to say suicide, right? Exactly. 
But I mean, it's just the whole story of the family and everything. When I was reading the book, it was almost like they were covering up for him, but also the father's reputation and career was it's, a very exactly. Nice case, yeah. And yeah, I'm, I mean, you just knew uh, they they were said to be very cold people and very, very much absorbed in their own reputation. Um, certainly, if General Motors caught wind that their, you know, head financial guy's son was the Oakland County child killing, that killer, uh, that would have been horrible. Um, it would have been horrible for GM that the, the news would have yes. been a uh, public relations disaster. And also, yes. yeah. if it was a network thing and there were other exactly. executives, that's an even bigger problem. Mm-hmm. So there's an even higher incentive to cover yeah. This whole thing up one way or another, however, yeah. like very dark gothic type exactly. stuff. Yeah. Um, I talked to the officers, or at least um, two of them, who arrived on the scene, and they said, "Yeah, we looked at all this and thought, you know, of course this is the the child killer." And and um, one officer, he's now retired in Florida, said. You know, we were sure that they were going to go back and run Bush's name and and do their due diligence and uh, try and figure out his connections to the crime. But instead, what happened is they did go back and they ran Bush's name and they discovered that he he was a suspect in Flint, right? Right. And that he'd been cleared by the polygraph and he'd been freed and. Weeks later, Timmy King winds up dead. And I and Corey Williams um, believe and have talked to other officers who concur that rather than expose the fact that they had Chris Bush and, and then let him go, they decided to close the door on investigating Bush's involvement when they had the chance. You know, they didn't want to, you know, they didn't want to let a terrorized community know that they'd committed a grave error, you know. Right. So that was a cover up. And I think you wrote in the book, there was a correlation or a possible connection between Bush and Francis Sheldon, right? Yes. We know that that um, Bush was one of Francis Sheldon's clients and. at one of his arrests, he had a suitcase full of full of films, homemade films. Um, and back then, there was no internet, so all of you know the pedophiles um, communicated well with each other through newsletters. Um, and it's you know the other thing is um, it was uh, early on. It was often thought that because nobody witnessed any of the kids being snatched and, and there was no no witness to any kid being shoved in a car or no screams or skirmishes that um, uh, it was thought that the you know the kids must have gone with their captors willingly. They must have maybe even recognized you know who was beckoning them to the car. And for that reason everybody became suspect. You know, priests and and coaches and teachers and and even police officers. So, um, 
it, it's, it's, there's so much that we don't know, even, even after, you know, so much investigation, we don't know where the kids were held. Um, and I can, I, 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 money and power can make a lot of things go away, you know? Right, right. <clears throat> Even his parents, Bush's parents kind of suspiciously left yes. the area. And I think they yeah. ended up in London, kind of yeah. like they didn't really want to stay around, which they might have known more than they were letting on with. And I think you wrote in the book, Christopher Bush, his predilection started when he was at boarding school in Switzerland. So he's like an elite. I mean, those are not yeah. cheap to go to school there. Yes, yes, yes. I mean, I'll put him yeah. in the elite. He didn't act like his elite dad, but and his dad bought him money, bought him a bought him a restaurant, all kinds of stuff. Yeah, right. When and we do have it's starting to come to surface when you we do have evidence that that as I say, Corey un- unearthed a lot of evidence about very prominent wealthy people being involved in these rings. And some of them were auto executives, you know, so. Right. And I mean, yeah, I mean, there were these clubs. Sheldon was involved in, in Gross Point, very swanky, non yeah. yeah. club, all these kind of, he was in that kind of uh, environment maybe that he might've been a procurer making money. There was tons of, there were people who were paying money. Yeah, significant amount of money for films and stuff. So right, it was a multi-million-dollar industry, and it just it operated completely underground. And I think you said there was like six hundred customers or something. Like, there's a significant yeah. amount of people involved in that stuff. Yeah. Um, I mean, it's a great book. I really recommend this book. Oh. It's, it really, you caught the uh, that environment really well, and it really is an incredible story because it reminds me of like. Uh, it's called the family murders in Adelaide, where there still is relevant. They took place in the seventies era, very similar really? to yeah. this. Yeah, and uh, there was tons. Of, it seems like there were a lot of people involved in those murders, and even this, there was a much not the single serial killer. It seems right. like there was a network of right, right. So, it's um, you know, it's pretty dark. It's very dark, and it's and it's tragic. But you know, I I stuck with it for for many years because um even even if it's never solved and i think it will be solved um what happened in this investigation not just to the families but but to the community right you know should never happen again um the truth matters and and also because i wanted to celebrate you know the heroes of the story Corey williams who devoted 14 years of his life to this thing. And, and Barry Williams, I mean, Barry King never stopped fighting. And still fighting. I mean, there's a lot more in this book about all of the illegal proceedings and some names. A lot of people may know that are public. Um, Forgot the woman's name. Who's the attorney up there, but people kind of know her name. Yeah. Uh, But yeah, is there, I mean, congratulations on the book. Is there anything you'd like to you know, we're at 50 minutes. Is there anything like you, you'd like to add? Can you tell the audience about where you can be contacted? Sure, or sure, sure. I have a website and it's uh, called the snowkillings.com. Um, I should let you know that since the book has been published, um, some some very brave people have come forward and, oh and things are starting to open up. Oh. We, we have a new prosecutor in Oakland County. Um, 
who has promised to make uh, the safety of children a, a priority, and she has promised to take some interest in this case. And um, I just, the more we can get the story of this case out there, the, the more likelihood we have of solving it. You know, truth dies in darkness. And, uh, and I mean, there's still, people are still finding DNA evidence and all yeah, kinds of things. And, up and to people know things, you know, this did not happen in a vacuum. Right. Right. And so your website is the snowkillings.com. All one Correct. word. Is that right? Okay, Correct. Great. Awesome. Well, Marnie Keenan, thank you so much for the interview. It's a, just a fascinating, riveting book. Oh, Highly recommend you, it. Again, it the, the title of the book is The Snow Killings Inside the Oakland County Child Killer Investigation by Marnie Rich Keenan, published 2020. Thanks so much, Marnie. Thank you, William. I really appreciate All it. Right. Take care. Have a great Take day. Take care. All right. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.